Here's a short opera quiz. What's the one place you can go to get an inside look at opera provided by more than 25 expert lecturers in over 5,000 minutes of talks covering more than 50 operas from the past three Metropolitan Opera seasons? You guessed it. This is the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. everyone. I'm Naomi Baratera. And I'm Stuart Holt. And today we are your co-hosts for the Metropolitan Opera Guild's 100th podcast episode. Yes, and to add another milestone, we have reached over half a million listens in the previous 99 episodes. These episodes provide over 80 hours of educational presentations covering opera from all sorts of angles, spanning repertoire across the past three Met Opera seasons. Because this is such an exciting milestone for us, we wanted our 100th episode to celebrate the many efforts in arts education that the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild have worked on together over the years. We have quite the lineup of special guests with us today, along with clips from a variety of events to share, all in an effort to give you a special behind-the-scenes look at the Met Opera Guild's rich history and current work in opera education. So to start things off, we will begin with a roundtable discussion led by Opera News Editor-in-Chief F. Paul Driscoll. Hello, I'm F. Paul Driscoll, Editor-in-Chief of Opera News, and I'm here with Thomas Martin, Managing Director of the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Richard Miller, President of the Board of Directors of the Metropolitan Opera Guild. Welcome, Tom and Rich. Thank you, F. Thank you. We're here to talk about the Metropolitan Opera Guild, which has a very rich history of arts education. The organization was born out of a desire to foster an appreciation of the art form. Tom, tell me something about the Metropolitan Opera Guild's history. When was it founded and who founded it? Well, the Guild was founded back in 1935 by Eleanor Belmont, which makes us 83 years old now. Why did she think this was a good idea to create a guild? Well, what she was thinking, she, was, she proposed to create the Guild to cultivate wider interest in and support for opera. Mm-hmm. And was there a definite mission statement at that point? Well, her original mission statement was to create an organization that could act as a fundraising support system for the Metropolitan Opera Company and create educational opportunities to develop future audiences. Now, there's a mission statement still with the Guild, is there not? Do you have the well, copy of that? Well, it's our updated mission statement, and I'll quote from that. The mission of the Metropolitan Opera Guild is to enrich people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera while supporting the Metropolitan Opera by expanding its reach into diverse communities and wider audience. So Mrs. Belmont and her fundraising support system for the Metropolitan Opera Company, as it was called then, how successful was she when it started? Well, she's very successful um, through radio. And again, this is back in the Great Depression. Um, She raised over $300,000 in her first year and subsequently became the first woman on the board of the Metropolitan Opera. Huh. So uh, she went directly to audiences on the radio in the 1930s. 
And we have an excerpt from the documentary that was played at the Guild's 75th anniversary luncheon that features Mrs. Belmont speaking about what the Met needed. Let's listen to a little bit of that. The Metropolitan Opera Guild has established a national membership through which you and all our radio audience will be able to enjoy closer association with the Metropolitan Opera and participate in our ever-increasing national pride in the achievements of this the greatest opera company in the world today. From its earliest days, the Guild was organized by Mrs. Belmont to pursue a large variety of simultaneous efforts. Education programs were a priority from the organization's beginning, and during the first year, student tickets to Met performances were made available. The next year, Opera News was launched under the editorship of Mary Ellis Peltz. First as a bulletin, then expanded into a magazine. In its early years, the Guild sponsored student performances, published books about opera, raised funds for a new production of Wagner's Ring, and started an endowment for the Met. During the Second World War, the Guild collected and restored musical instruments for distribution to military hospitals and made Met tickets available to members of the armed forces. Many of the programs still run by the Guild were envisioned by Mrs. Belmont and her hard-working board and staff. On her own, she also acted as a mentor to a number of young American singers, giving advice and lending a helping hand to Risa Stevens, Helen Traubel, and Rosalind Elias, among many others. And through all of those years, she continued to be both a valued sounding board for the leaders of the Met and a familiar presence to opera lovers, promoting Guild membership in person and on the company's broadcasts with a voice and style that inspired one admirer to call her Our Lady of the Enunciation. I am convinced the future of opera concerns the American people as a whole. It lies with all of you who write to us so eagerly for information. It lies in the hearts of an understanding public. Experience shows that we in the Guild can strengthen that understanding most effectively through active Guild membership, because membership brings you a vast fund of information which will enable you to visualize the actual performances which you hear on the air. That was an excerpt from the 2010 Met Opera Guild Luncheon, which celebrated the Guild's 75th anniversary and Mrs. Eleanor Belmont speaking to the Met radio audience. Now, Tom, you've been the managing director of the Metropolitan Opera Guild and my boss for three years now. What stands out for you as one of the most exciting things about the Guild during your time with that organization? I guess one of the most exciting things is the strength of our collaborative spirit with the Metropolitan Opera Association and the close working relationship we have with the general manager, Peter Gelb. At this same 75th anniversary luncheon, Peter had some wonderful things to say about the importance and potential of that collaboration. The Guild has played a crucial role in a very large part of the Met's history. Mrs. Belmont's idea of creating a national support system for the Met was a great idea at the time, and it continues to be great for the Met today. For three quarters of a century, the Guild has been an extraordinary partner for the Met, supporting our mission to present the highest caliber opera productions through the Guild's educational and its public programs. We are very thankful to the Guild and its members for the financial support and for the Guild's tireless efforts to nurture future generations of opera lovers 
and to educate people of all ages about the incomparable riches of our art form. That was General Manager Peter Gelb speaking at the 75th anniversary luncheon for the Metropolitan Opera Guild. Rich, that was your first luncheon as president of the Metropolitan Opera Guild Board of Directors. What are some of the exciting developments you've seen in your eight years as president of the Guild? Well, where do I start? Uh, the, the, the last eight years have been really tremendous. Uh, certainly, the highlights are, are the growth of, of our programming at the Guild. Um, with respect to Opera News, which is, I think, the pinnacle of, of one of the things that we do in terms of educational outreach. Opera News uh, introduced a digital edition in 2015 and now reaches opera lovers through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as through our website, um, operanews.com. It goes without saying that from the very beginning, uh, school programming has been an important part of the Guild's mission. And our school programs have grown in terms of the number of students served and number of schools participating. The Guild also hosted its first lecture for adult learners in 1937. And today, we offer over 120 different lectures or community learning events to our, to our audiences and, and, and supporters. Most specifically, this program, the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, did not exist in 2010. So I think that's a really important development. Rich, why did the Guild decide to create a podcast? Well... The podcasts were created in response to guild members who don't necessarily live in the tri-state area and within reach and geographical uh, boundaries of New York City, but still wanted to experience the guild's programs. Now we're able to reach them through this great, wonderful, this, this great technology. So now what are the numbers? How many seasons have, has this been operative? We are now in three seasons after its launch, and we've reached 100 episodes and a half of a million listeners, which is really tremendous. That's fantastic. So let's explore the variety of the Guild's education programming just a little bit more. At the same Guild anniversary luncheon in 2010, Mezzo Susan Graham shared her thoughts on the depth and scope of the Metropolitan Opera Guild school programs and community engagement initiatives. I am just overwhelmed by the range, depth, and sophistication of the Guild School Partnerships. There is so much that goes on just beneath the surface of what we know about as opera, we performers who just get up there on the stage and, and do it to the best of our ability. It is the fiber of, of the operatic culture in our country. These, these programs include Access Opera, which gives opportunities for thousands of students to attend dress rehearsals and evening performances at the Met. And you know, whenever we're on stage in a final dress, you had this recently, Debbie, you look up there in the, in the, in the balconies and, and there are tons of school kids and they get so into it. It's like they're at a football game. They, they cheer for the good guy and boo the bad guy and they haven't started throwing things yet to my knowledge, but that might come and you know, bring it on because it's, a, it's interactive. Opera as interactive. Um, the Access Opera also provides the teachers, which I think this is fantastic, with in-depth materials to help them prepare the students for the performances so they'll know what they're, they're about to see. There's Urban Voices, a choral music program that builds musical skills in students through song. And I think a lot of us in this room have been in, involved in choral programs, and you know that's a a very important part of a musical training. Urban Voices operates in both New York and Boston and often in schools that have no other music instruction. The Guild also offers programs that give students a chance to compose and present their own musical plays. 
I love this, based on source material drawn from the classroom curriculum. For example, recently when a fifth grade social studies teacher was covering Western expansion and the Oregon Trail, he had his class write a mini opera on the subject, and I'm sure that helped make it one American history lesson that those kids will never forget. It was their own little Fanchula del Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> But can you imagine they do that and then they come and see a performance of Fanchula and they, it just ties it all in so beautifully for them. Because teacher training is an important part of all this work, the Guild has created the Opera Institute. This brings together teachers of all subject areas to help develop their ability to teach in and through the arts. But the Guild education programs aren't just for kids. Its community programs include a wide range of adult presentations that explore opera, both for newcomers and dyed-in-the-wool fans. This season alone, the Guild is presenting more than 100 events, including pre-performance lectures by noted authorities, and give audience members a greater understanding of the works in the Met repertory. There are workshops and master classes that probe all aspects of performance and opera boot camps. The Singer's Studio collaborations with the editors of Opera News presents intimate interviews with today's opera stars. How intimate do those get, I wonder? Hmm. Ever since the Guild's founding, it has been an incubator for new ideas that support the Met and get more people involved with opera. Everything that I've learned today impresses me with the long-reaching tentacles of this Guild and how they have shaped opera education, and the way that we think about and do opera, the way fundraising has developed in America and now is reaching worldwide. It's an astonishing, astonishing institution, and I am so grateful to all of you who have been a part of it for so long and will continue to keep this alive. I have no doubt that this extraordinary organization will continue to find new ways to keep the Met and the art form itself thriving. That was Susan Graham in 2010 speaking at the Metropolitan Opera Guild's 75th anniversary luncheon about the educational initiatives of the Guild. If you're interested in finding out more about the Guild programs, what's on our calendar, what's upcoming this month or for the rest of the season or for next season, check metguild.org. One of the programs that Susan talked about is students attending dress rehearsals, final dress rehearsals. Tom, can you tell me a little bit more about how that program works, which is a, a cooperative effort between the Metropolitan Opera Guild and the Metropolitan Opera? It's now called Access Opera, but how did that begin? Um, let me just say first that this is my personal favorite education program that we offer at the Guild. But back to your question, in the early days, the Guild made it possible for 3,000 students to attend student matinees. Today, the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild collaborate in welcoming students and teachers to dress rehearsals, normally about 13 to 15 each season. I think we did 14 this year. This season alone, we've had over 15,000 students and teachers participate in this program. What I believe is very important is that for many students, this is the first time they have been to an opera house, or for that matter, their first live performance. Is that why it's your favorite Guild education program? Well, it is because it, me it reaches people that have never experienced performances, and particularly opera. Mm -hmm. And now, some 
really well-known singers experienced opera for the first time through this program. Martina Arroyo is one who's currently a member of the Metropolitan Opera Guild board, and the late Regina Resnick, who was also a board member. Both grew up locally and both attended dress rehearsals uh, or student matinees as part of the guild programming. But Martina Arroyo and Regina Resnick aren't the only wonderful Met artists who hold arts education as a cause that is near and dear to their hearts. Now we've got three singers who have shared their thoughts with us about arts education. All of them were at the Met this season, and all of them will be at the Met next season. Let's see if you can identify them from their speaking voices. I wouldn't be on this path had it not been for music education in the schools I grew up in, in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. It's fundamental to me because I've so many hands have been a part of bringing me help to this path that I have to go back and, and just you know, keep that fresh because actually all my role models like Ana Maria Martinez, Placido Domingo, they're all, they're giving back. They're, you know, one of the largest humanitarians that we know. So it comes with a territory in my opinion. And for me, the priority is having the music there as, as a skill, just how we approach reading or mathematics or, you know, it's just, it's a way of writing, of course, mm-hmm. you know, or, or sports. It's a way of having a role in a larger picture than yourself and learning how to be disciplined and collaborate with others. And I think that it it nurtures our imaginations and creativity, and so I think it's really important. I remember the first kids that I, I encountered were the kids who came to my debut at Le Contourie. They came to the final dress rehearsals, and then they wrote notes. Each and every child wrote me a note. It was such a big experience for me, and I, I mean, it was so fast. But when I was reading the notes, I realized how much hard work it took. I realized how much I gave, you know, all the things that, the, you know, you don't think you, you, you do because you want perfection and you want to make it right. And so I always just wanted to go back to the kids and say, thank you for coming to the performance, but also to tell my story and basically letting them know that nothing is impossible. In general, anything that you can dream Somehow you are propelled to work so hard that you actually do achieve it. So mostly it's to inspire that natural talent. We're always born with something special. And I found something special. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can find something special too so that we can all have a better world. We live in a world where there is fearsome competition for charitable dollars every day, where there's a lot of pressure for you to give to other causes. But you know that all great societies need the arts. In the dark days of World War II, Winston Churchill argued that without art and culture, what would there be left to fight for? And in my mind, there is no greater art form than opera because it incorporates all the arts. Today, in our technological world, creativity is the key to success. It's even more important now for the arts to be integrated into our lives, especially into education. Recently, the Metropolitan Opera arranged for me to speak via Skype with 150 classroom students in Tallahassee, Florida, who were about to see the HD broadcast of Otello. I love talking to them. It's something I hope to do a lot more of. Unfortunately today, for the most part, children are being denied the pleasure and the experience of the arts as it is systematically ripped out of our schools. This is a national travesty. If joy and creativity are lost, I believe we become a flat society. But I also believe 
that with the people like the ones in this room, we can make sure that that never happens. Those were, in order of vocal appearance, sopranos Eileen Perez, Pretty Yenda, and tenor Michael Fabiano. Now, there are a lot of other people, some who work behind the scenes, who came to opera through Guild programs and now support this work in a variety of capacities. Tom, can you think of anyone who fits that description? Yes, I think and think of one. Our own Rich Miller is one of those people. Uh-huh. Someone who's directly benefited from the impact of the Metropolitan Opera Guild programs, and he is now helping to provide the opportunity for the next generation. Rich, do you have any stories about that? Oh, I do. Um, it goes back to my, when I was in seventh grade at the Howard Goff Middle School in East Greenbush, New York. I had a wonderful music teacher, sort of an appropriate name for a music teacher. Her name was Doris Clapper. And and this is the era of film strips. And Doris Clapper uh-huh. um, used uh, Guild education materials for the purpose of, of introducing us to, to opera. Uh-huh. And it, it literally changed my life. I mean, it, 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 I knew nothing about opera. I, I, I had some opera um, experiences of just sort of tangentially within my family. But she, uh, these materials were, and in particular, I, I can recall the film strips and where you had to synchronize the film strip with the, with the actual recording of the opera. And she opened up this world to me of music that, but for the Guild and what we provided teachers and schools with, uh, really changed my life. What was the first opera that you went to? Um, it was, it was later on, actually, uh, the, the actual live performance was um, a production of The Flying Dutchman, which is an odd sort of opera to go to for a first opera. But uh-huh. um, I, had, I was studying voice after college with uh, John Alexander, mm-hmm. wonderful tenor here at the Met, and Roz Elias, who's also on our board, had introduced me to, to John. And, and I was here on a Saturday. I was here in the, in the house on a Saturday, and I saw a production of, of The Flying Dutchman. That's mm-hmm. my first my first opera, live performance. And what was the first opera that you went to, Tom? Oh, let me think back. I think it was Madame Butterfly. Was it when you were working here? No, no. Um, an old friend had sort of dragged me to, uh, <laughs> to that performance. I did not know anything about opera. And, uh, you know, that was uh, my first introduction. Uh-huh. And then when I came here, I've been going to about 20 operas a year. Mm-hmm. Well, I go to a at least that many, <laughs> here in other places, and I never get tired of it. So thank you both for being with me here to talk about this milestone in Guild history of the 100th episode of the podcast. Uh, Tom Martin, Managing Director of the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Richard Miller, President of the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Board of Directors, thank you very much. Thank you, F. Paul. Thank you, F. Paul. I'm joined now by Kevin Kellogg of the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund, one of the earliest financial supporters of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Lovely to have you here. And it's a delight to be here. And congratulations on on this milestone. I mean, when you think about half a million listens yes, that's to great. talks and lectures about opera, I mean, that is... Uh, that's pretty phenomenal. We're very proud of it. Yeah. Now, how did you discover the podcast, and why did the fund want to support this particular effort of the guilds? Well, I actually discovered it probably as many people have. I was planning to go to an opera that I didn't know particularly well, mm-hmm. and I live here in New York. So I looked to see if the guild was going to have a lecture on that opera, 
and found that they had, but I had missed it, but it was available on this podcast. And once I discovered the podcast, it was it was um, an, an, an obvious thing that this fund should support. The, the Stuart Pierce Memorial Fund is something I established with the New York Community Trust in memory of my late husband, Stuart Pierce, who, as you know, had a remarkable career at the Metropolitan Opera and at the Metropolitan Opera Guild. At the Met, uh, he worked in and managed so many aspects of the business side Mm -hmm. of opera, Uh, planning, marketing, finance. He was the assistant general manager for operations. And at the Metropolitan Opera Guild, he actually began his career as a student intern and finished as the managing director of the Metropolitan Opera Guild, which should encourage anyone out there who's uh, in a student internship. You never know what's, uh, what's going to happen. And and uh, you worked with Stuart and knew him very well. And I think you'd agree that Stuart was really quite brilliant about so many facets of opera. Mm-hmm. And, and he really believed that um, to nurture opera audiences and to expand opera audiences, you really needed two components – Education, which I know um, on this podcast uh, you've been talking about a great deal, and by education, not just education for students in schools, which is critical, but adult education. It's like any hobby. It's like sports. The more you know about opera, potentially, the more you'll get out of it and the more you'll enjoy it. So, mm-hmm. So education was key. But for Stuart, it was also really about that media was critical to nurturing opera audiences. And if you think about it, media has been essential to opera for over 100 years since Enrico Caruso and Mm -hmm. the gramophone and the incredible um, Saturday afternoon broadcasts, which have, you know, exposed opera to, to... Millions of people over multiple generations, and now the really uh, brilliant live and HD transmissions, mm-hmm. of course. So f- when I thought about it, the podcasts are this perfect marriage between education and media. And I thought it's exactly the kind of thing that uh, Stuart would feel strongly about and would support and and through uh, this fund, um, hopefully I can uh, help in whatever way I can. You already are helping. Thank you. And I think the remarkable thing for me, one of many remarkable things about Stuart, was that he had such insatiable curiosity about opera. I was always amazed that he always knew who was singing what, where they were singing it, what repertory was appropriate, who had written what when, and what recordings were available off the top of his head, in addition to... <laughs> All those other things that were crowding in that brain. So I think it's terrific that this is getting the word out to so many people that are going to be able to listen to these in their homes or in their cars or on their computers or whatever. It's terrific. Absolutely. And Stuart and I have both loved bringing people uh, to opera performances. Mm-hmm. And you can bring someone to the opera, not tell them a thing, and they will love La Boheme, they'll love the music, they'll love the production. It's it's terrific. You can go to opera 
with with no background and still enjoy it. But whenever we would first have dinner with a friend, mm-hmm. and um, and Stuart in particular would give a talk and context and and the history of the production and the history of of the composer, you could just see how um, how people really would lighten up and would uh, also lose their fear of opera mm-hmm. and would enjoy it much more. And and I think all of us who love opera, and Stuart in particular, in a way are ambassadors of opera. I mean, you certainly, sure. through your work at Opera News, I mean, that's what we're doing is, is sort of spreading the word. Mm-hmm. Making converts all the time, we hope. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your support of the podcast. It's been extraordinary to have you on board with us to really put the imprimatur of the fund and of Stuart's name on this, which is a privilege for all of us to continue that association with the Guild program. It's an honor, and I think Stuart would be uh, especially pleased. Well, thank you very much, Kevin Kellogg from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Thank you. To close our discussion today, we've compiled some episode highlights of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, just a small taste of the fun and fascinating inside look into the world of opera that this podcast as a whole offers its listeners. In order of vocal appearance, you'll hear an excerpt from an early episode featuring Met opera prompter Donna Ratchik, part of a musical chairs interview with legendary mezzo-soprano Grace Bumbry, an opera news singer studio interview with star tenor Piotr Bechawa, and an excerpt from one of the most popular episodes this season featuring the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra principal bassoonist William Short, discussing the magic flute. I'm F. Paul Driscoll, Editor-in-Chief of Opera News. I was fortunate enough to be taken under the wing of Susan Webb, who was a prompter at the Met. She just passed away a few uh, months ago, actually. But um, at the time, she was at the Met, and um, I approached her, and I auditioned for her, and she said, sure, you can come. You will get, let's talk to the Met. They gave me permission to go and observe rehearsals at the Met. So it was a great education, and after watching, I guess somebody, in, you know, they must have thought, oh, she, she's serious about it. And the head of rehearsal at the time one day called me in and said, how would you like to prompt an opera next spring? And I started with La Boheme with Placido and Nello Santi. And I was so excited, of course. Can you imagine? <laughs> and it was really such a great experience. One of the things that happened on stage, and you know, I said, Funny things happen on stage. At the beginning of the last act, when you have Marcello and Rodolfo, Paolo Coni was singing Marcello, and he and Placido switched lines. One of them sang the other's line, and they just switched. Well, the audience didn't know it happened so fast, but of course, my reaction, which is very normal, is I laughed. I mean, what are you going to do? It's just so darn funny. And they were laughing, and Nello Santi was laughing. And it was, you know, it's those funny things. So today, just as it just so happens, we have an orchestra. We had an orchestra rehearsal of Cavalleria, and um, you know the the end of the the duet between Turidu, the tenor, right, and Santuzza, the 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 uh, protagonist. She says to him, "Bada, watch out." And he said, "You know, nellira tua non mi curo. I don't give it. You know what about your hank?" However, the tenor said, Bada. <laughs> so he took her line, right? And it's, 
one of those that they say, they don't even sing it, you know, Bada, you know, and then I told me put it, all this. And so when he took her line, of course she started laughing. You know, it's just that funny, they know each other's lines so well, right? That they can sing the whole darn opera. And today I was, we were in um, rehearsing Pagliacci, we were rehearsing the second act, where they have the Commedia dell'arte, you know, so you have the, the clowns up there and all of that. And, um, we were having a great time with this. And th again, the, what the troupe, these clowns are pretty amazing. But I'm looking over, and do you know Ambrogio, um, who sang Falstaff? So he's, he's singing Cavalia, but he and George are uh, covering each other. So he was in the Pagliacci, he was doing the Tonio. And I looked over, and the Cagno singing, one of the tragic parts. And I look over at Ambrogio, and Ambrogio has his eyes closed, mouthing the words, just listening. I mean, do you love that? You know, it's been a lot. He started at 10.30 this morning. There he is in the afternoon, just loving the music. It's just so beautiful. I was invited to audition for Carmen in Cologne, Germany, for Maestro Savalich. So I went to Cologne. Of course, I didn't vocalize very high because Carmen's not very high. So uh, I sang the Carmen, and before I got a chance to finish, she asked me, would I sing something, in a, something higher? And I thought, well, Maestro, I don't know why I would need something higher. Carmen doesn't have anything higher. But I have an idea, he says. Okay. So I asked him, give me time, give me another 15 minutes to go and vocalize higher, and then I, I'd be delighted. So which is, which is what he offered me, and I did. So I offered, Odon Fatale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was on the strength of the Odon Fatale that I was then asked would I go to Bayreuth to audition for Wieland Wagner. And um, which is what I did, and well, the rest I think you all know. So then you became the first African-American singer to sing at the Bayreuth Festival. That's correct. As Venus. But this became a huge controversy in Germany, the fact that Wagner cast you. Yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge controversy before I sang. Right. Every, everybody, I mean, all the newspapers and magazines and what, what have you, there were, there were people terribly, terribly dis, dis, disappointed and disgusted that Wieland had hired a black singer. But he said, his remark was that my, my grandfather uh, did not hire, did not write for. He wrote for vocal he wrote, colors. He did not write for f uh, skin colors. Right. He wrote for vocal colors. And her voice is the, is the color that I was looking for. This is what he said himself. And he, he stood by me in all of that, through all of that, uh, all of that hullabaloo. One of the remarkable things um, that I saw in your performance last night was that you seemed to be just as fresh at the end of the evening as you were at the beginning. Like you could have just turned around and taken it from the top. How do you pace a role like the Duke where you have a, you know, a big aria in every act? It's a really tricky role because uh, my problem with Duke uh, is uh, it's the big breaks between. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have, you have first act and you have uh, maybe 15 minutes uh, uh, interruption and then after the big duet with Gilda you have almost half hour 
and you have to do something because you know to keep the tension of the voice uh, in the right place, uh, you can't just lean down and 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 uh, um, read the opera news. You know, that's, <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> you could, but uh, uh, it's really uh, I I just work in between also with another uh, things. You know, I I study a little bit uh, another music and uh, but actually. It is not so uh, big role that you can be exhausted. The problem is really that it's every scene is different. First scene, it's it's maybe the easiest one, but uh, you have to be very good warmed up for 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 Questa Quella and for this uh, uh, ensemble afterwards. But then you have the bel canto uh, duet with Gilda. And uh, the second act starts with La Mi Fura Pita. It's actually a different style of, 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 of singing. And then it's actually the Duca's act, uh, the last act, where you have La Donna Mobile Quartet, which is actually aria for the tenor with the accompaniment of three voices. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's not my opinion, it's the opinion of Maestro Santi. And uh, you finish you finish your 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 your, your evening with the with the si naturale, you know, with the, uh, that's that's something, you know. Yeah. It's it's a very nice line about this uh, uh, that you can compare it with a singer in Rosenkavalier, mm -hmm. which is just seven minutes. But it's the if you can make it, do it. But if you can't, leave it <laughs> because it's 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 just very difficult. Yeah. So we have this really funny moment where, where Papageno is, is singing this <laughs> right? And the, and the bassoon is just bringing out that funny character. And again, this sort of ties in with the idea of the bassoon as the clown of the orchestra. And I, I totally welcome that characterization because, look, it's something the bassoon does really well. But it's also just funny to note that this is the moment that everyone remembers the bassoon playing in this in this opera with all these gorgeous lines that we get to play all this huge variety this is the bassoony moment of the opera to be to be honest <laughs> Okay, and this this moment, you know, the the nice thing about playing these staccato passages on the bassoon is that it's really easy, you know, to just play you know, anyone could do. So, so the, the, the nice thing about a passage like this is this, this kind of really staccato, really humorous playing is not difficult on the bassoon. What we sort of have to look out for in this passage are, are the slurs, actually. The those, those three in particular, all of them sort of don't really want to want to speak, and so it's actually fairly easy to, to have one of them not, not sound quite so hot. So we have this interesting mix where we can take the, these staccato notes for granted, but we really sort of have to be very careful with our air, with, with our embouchure, you know, our, our lip pressure and placement on the reed to make sure that, that these pairs of notes in between the staccato notes come out nice and cleanly and evenly and characterfully. <laughs> Ich kann nicht tun, als nicht beklagen, weil ich zu schwach zu helfen bin. <lacht> 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 
We just heard four excerpts from previous podcast episodes featuring William Short, principal bassoonist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, star tenor Piotr Bekchawa, mezzo Grace Bumbry, and Met Opera prompter Donna Ratchik. That's just a small taste of the great content that you can find. Special thanks to F. Paul Driscoll, Tom Martin, Rich Miller, and Kevin Kellogg for joining us for our 100th podcast episode. Even though the 2017-18 season of the Metropolitan Opera has ended, our podcast programming will continue throughout the summer. We'll be back with a new episode next week featuring Met Radio commentator Ira Siff talking about great operatic duos. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for your support of the Metropolitan Opera Guild's educational efforts. We believe very strongly in the importance of arts education, and we could not continue to foster the next generation of opera lovers without your generous support. For more information about how you can support the Metropolitan Opera Guild and its various programs, including this podcast, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera. And I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.